invitation in the world is that one right there. When Jesus speaks into your heart through the Holy Spirit and says, I want you to follow me. No greater invitation. You know, Dave and I were chatting about that song, and I was glad to hear the applause at the end, how much you guys really like that song. And we kind of wrestled with the term, you know, Jesus arrested death. And, you know, you kind of, I think, I think you said it's kind of like a little hokey, phrase, but he really liked the song. And I, you know, I was sitting there on the front row, and I figured it out. It's not, a, it's, here's not the picture. It's not the picture of Sheriff Jesus showing up with a six-shooter and pointing at death and saying, that's it for you, friend, you're going to jail. That's not the picture. The picture is when a two-ton fighter jet going 150 miles an hour approaches a carrier and hits the arresting wire and goes from zero or from, from 160 to zero in one second. It puts the stop on it. Jesus didn't just arrest death. He stopped death. He stopped death. And, and we're going to celebrate that come Easter. So when you think of that song, all you Navy guys all jump up and sing the Navy hymn. Because I don't think it's him putting je- uh, death in a prison because he can escape from prison. He's putting a stop to it. He's putting a stop to it. Death has no power for the believer in Jesus Christ. Hey, we are just glad you're here today. Thank you for coming and sharing here at Dorisville. And we're in our second or third message in this, this series on Peter's life, The Peter Principle. The Peter Principle, finding him, finding me. I talked about the double meaning, how that it's finding Jesus in, in Peter's life, but also finding us in Peter's life. It's just, it's just a wonderful context and story of Peter's life because he's so much like us. And today we want to talk about the topic of the great confession. The great confession. You know, one of the great amazing things to me in life is Facebook. Now, I'm not a Facebooker. It kind of goes like this. If Facebook sends me, I do have an account. If Facebook sends me your name and says you're having a birthday, I get on Facebook and wish you happy birthday. At least I try to. I may miss some, but that's my Facebook experience. But inevitably, I may you know, go down just a couple of names, see what people are saying. And it's an amazing thing about Facebook is there is no lack of opinions on Facebook. I've discovered enough of that. I mean, every, first off, everybody wants to tell you, you know, what's going on in their life. Last night, I had carrots for supper. You know, breaking news, breaking news. Joe had carrots for supper. It's big news. You know, everything's big on Facebook. But, but also, again, people express their opinions so openly and freely. And sometimes, you know, things that are on Facebook are accurate. You know, there's been a story floating around on Facebook this week about four missionaries who were killed in Iraq in Mosul. And Gene and I looked at one another and was going, we haven't heard about this. And we got some friends in, in, over in Central Asia, and we didn't hear from them about this. And it turned out somehow, in fact, by the way, we got notified by IBSA from one of the secretaries there. That's how this thing caught on. A friend of mine in Jacksonville, Florida, I grew up with, was talking about it on Facebook. And it turned out somehow that thing happened in 2004. 2004. And somehow it got picked up and circulated falsely again. And people are going, oh, we mourn this, we mourn this. Well, yes, it happened, but it hadn't, you know, a long time ago, 13 years ago, as a matter of fact. We're grateful. So not everything you read on Facebook is true. That's an amazing statement, isn't it? Not everything you read on Facebook is true. You know, and also, you know, when, what people say, they get on things and you like things. 
You know, you know, I like this movie. And enough people like it, then you kind of go, well, gee, that must be a good movie. I'll go see that movie. It's kind of like the opinion poll kind of idea. And one thing, it, a lot of things came out of the election this last year, and it's no, no kind of a political statement. But, you know, one thing we learned, I think, was that polls are not always right. You know, the poll in this case was really wrong. Well, I want to talk to you today about how that Jesus took an opinion poll and how how that was important. He teach, one of the things he teaches us is not what the populace says, but what we say about Jesus. Our scripture is in Matthew chapter 16. That's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. Matthew's the first one. Matthew chapter 16. I bet you can tell me who it was written by. A guy named Matthew. How about that? Isn't that amazing? All right. Matthew chapter 16. One of the great scriptures that we have in the, in the life and story of Jesus, and certainly one of the one of the high points of Peter's life is this Matthew chapter 16. So let's just sort of set the story up in the first verse, verse 13. The Bible says, Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. Let me read it again to you. When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi. So, so here's the setup. If you look back, and we're not going to look there, but if you look back in the first 1, 2, 3, 4 of Matthew chapter 16, the first four verses, you see that, that the Pharisees were, were testing him and harassing him. And so finally he decided just to get away. He didn't run away. He just simply got away. It's kind of like, have, have you all ever been down south in the summertime? Yeah, we got these things called gnats. You know, and, and, and again, they love when you're eating watermelon to show up. But, but you sit there and they fly around you. They don't bite you or anything. They're just an annoyance. And you learn to, you learn to kind of blow with your lips. You, know, you, you, blow, you blow the gnats away. Well, well, Jesus isn't running away from the Pharisees. He's not afraid of the Pharisees. He's just getting away from them because they're such a nuisance. And he goes to this place called Caesarea Philippi. And it's such an unusual place because he's going there to do something but he chooses the most unusual location to do it. Caesarea Philippi, one, had a history of Baal worship. For centuries before, there was a false god named Baal, and he's going there to, to do something, and he goes into the stronghold of idol worship. Now, in the times that he's living, um, the Greeks had a great temple there to the, to the uh, false god of Pan. And you can go there today and go there and you'll see the ruins of these great temples dedicated to the god of Pan. So you've got Baal worship going on. You've got Pan. And then on top of that, Herod has built a huge temple there in honor of Caesar. Hence the name Caesarea Philippi. And so, this, so here is Jesus. And in the shadow of all this Baal worship and in the shadow of all the great of works of buildings of Pan, and then in the shadow of Herod, uh, a temple that Herod built for Caesar, who thought himself to be a god, here's what he asked. He says, he asked disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? He's conducting a poll. He's asking the 12 guys in front of him, and he says, okay, listen, What's the word on the street? What, is the, what are the pollsters saying about who that I am? Now, let me just throw a caveat in here, lest I forget to do this. Jesus has a specific reason why he is doing the poll thing. Okay? He has a particular reason why he's doing that. Be very careful that you don't form your opinions, particularly about God. Be careful you don't form your opinions about God based on what the people are saying. 
especially in the culture that we have today. You know, there was a time when, when the culture in America was so different. Um, it, it was based on Judeo-Christian values. Um, you know, Bubba down south would, would believe in God, and Susie out in Kansas would believe in God and kind of tag in with Jesus Christ. That was just the culture that there was. Not so today. So before you throw God under the bus and before you discard Jesus because your college professor, you know, who's an atheist, said this, or your friends down at the school, students, your friends down, well, you know, some, some popular kid in school says, well, you know, I don't believe in Jesus. And you say, well, you know, since he don't believe in Jesus, then I probably shouldn't believe. Before you do all that, don't form your opinion about God based on popular culture because today the culture is really messed up. Particularly, particularly when it comes to the things of God. So Jesus says, so, so what's the word on the street? Who do people say that I, the Son of Man, is? Well, in verse 14, they started naming some things. And, and again, I've preached the scripture before, and I'm probably not going to change what I said before, really. You know, first off, they said, well, they said, you know, some say that you're John the Baptist. Now, at this point, John the Baptist is dead. So they're basically saying, you know, he got his head cut off by Herod. So, so basically, you know, they're saying that you are John the Baptist come back to life. And what's cool about that, all these are good. All these are good. So, so they're saying then, well, they think you're John the Baptist. And boy, did we respect John. So, so Jesus, what they're saying on the street is, you're a man of great respect. People, they may not understand you. They don't get everything that you are. But boy, do they respect you. Now, of course, the Pharisees didn't, but they didn't matter anyway. But the people in the street, the populace were saying, you know, they think you're a man of great respect. And then, and then somebody else speaks up and says, no, well, some people think you're Elijah. And it's really funny because John the Baptist and Elijah are tied together and that it was predicted that Elijah was come. And when John the Baptist was born, they said he's, he is the new Elijah. That's what they said about him. So Elijah was a miracle-working guy. Some of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament were performed by Elijah. And they had seen Jesus raise people from the dead. They'd seen Jesus open blinded eyes. They'd seen Jesus open deaf ears. He had fed a bunch of people with a couple of loaves and some fish. It was amazing things. And people go, they don't understand you all, Jesus. They don't have it all down pat. But they're pretty sure you're somebody amazing. Maybe even Elijah. And then, and then some of them think that you're Jeremiah. You know, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet and probably really because of his brokenness for Israel. Israel was in a great time of sin then and they were just so far away from God and, and Jesus wept over Jerusalem. But he also was tender-hearted like Jeremiah and certainly Jesus was so tender-hearted. So some people said, you're like Jeremiah. And then somebody else chimed in and said, well, really, they just think you're like a lot of the prophets, like Isaiah. In fact, you know, Jesus fulfilled a lot of Isaiah's prophecies when he came. So then he goes a little bit further, and, and he, he, we start getting the picture. Let me go first to John chapter 10. Because, again, you can't, you can't follow popular opinion always. The people then were confused and divided about Jesus. They didn't, now listen, they didn't know what to think of him. And guess what? That's not changed today. People don't know what to think about Jesus. That's why it's so irritating to the populace when we arrogant Christians stand up and say, Jesus said he is the way. He's not a way. He's not, listen, not all roads lead to Rome. Jesus said, I am the way. I am the way. Do you believe that today? Yeah, so, so again, in another America, that was pretty well commonly accepted. But in America today, that's just highly offensive to a lot of people. 
Listen to what, what was going on in John chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, there was a division among the Jews about Jesus because he had said something. Because of these sayings. Many of them said, he has a demon and he's, a, and he's mad. So some people were, in that day were saying Jesus was demon-possessed and he was crazy. I remember Bailey Smith making the comment I, I, I thought was powerful then. I think it's powerful now. When it comes to Jesus Christ, you know, he's either a liar or Lord. He's either a lunatic or he is Lord. He can't be both. And people back then said, some people think, Jesus, you're crazy. They said, we think you're crazy. And then they said this in John chapter 10. Why do you listen to him? That's a great cultural question now. More and more... You're hearing these words. Hey, students, are you hearing this? Why do you believe that God stuff anyway? Why do you believe that Jesus stuff anyway? Now, I'm going to tell you something right now. Students, listen up. There was a time when the Bible tells me so, and I heard it in Sunday school, and the preacher said, my, I've got you by. But in today's culture, you need to know why you believe what you believe. You've got to become a student of the Bible. The Word of God, no doubt, can be trusted. But I'm telling you, you're not going to get far with your friends, sharing Jesus with your friends by going, well, my pastor said, and they're going to go, well, who's your pastor? Who is he? You've got to be able to say, well, God said this, and God said this. Why do you listen to him? Well, I'll tell you why we listen to him. Because anybody, I love what Andy Stanley says, anybody who can predict their death, die, resurrect, and pull it off, predicts all that and pulls it off, yeah, we listen to him. We listen to him. That's why. That's why. But then there are some other people in, in John 10, 21. Others said, these are not the words of one who has a demon. We're going, we don't really understand Jesus. We can't get our arms all around him. But I'm telling you what, these are not the words of someone who's demon-possessed. It's just not. It goes on and says this. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? We may not fully understand all about Jesus, but we're telling you, these are not the words of a demon-possessed man. And this guy opens blind's eyes, and demons can't do that. There are valid answers for the questions today that culture is asking. We should not run from answering questions asked by culture. We should become students of the Word of God and be able to answer those questions according to the word of God. Well, he finally gets down to, in verse, uh, back in Matthew 16, verse number 15, he gets down to this. To say it's a big question, it's just, it's not, it's not big enough. He says this pivot point of a question. He says this. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? He moves from the populace and what people are saying, and he moves down to what do these 12 men say about Jesus. Now, this is huge. This is huge. Let me, let me go back to the setting just a little bit. As much as this is a weird place and that it's Baal worship, it's Pan worship, and they're worshiping Caesar, it's the headwaters of the Jordan River, it's peaceful, and it's quiet. He gets them aside so they can think clearly without the, the culture screaming into their ear. So this is a good place to ask this question. And who do you say that I am? Perhaps one of the most... No, no, no. Definitely one of the most important questions. Perhaps, Charlie, the most important question in the Word of God. 
It's a question that Peter had to grapple with. It's a question that every person must grapple with. Some of you here today who have never trusted Jesus Christ as Savior, who's never come to terms and grips with your own sin and what Jesus did and how he paid the price for that, that we might come to a relationship, it's a huge question for you. Because it will determine where you spend eternity. It will determine whether you, after that last heartbeat, whether you're eternally separated from God or eternally in the company of God. It's a huge question. Who do you say Jesus is? And for every believer, we got to keep asking ourselves that question because it's pivotal. It's pitiful. We have got to nail down on a day, not not just a date in history, but day by day by day, we've got to nail this down. Who do I think Jesus is? Who do I think Jesus is? Because again, in the culture we're living in, there's all these arguments. And we're not careful, we start believing the garbage and not the truth. Who do men say that I am? And notice he doesn't say, um, what do you think? What do you think? who, Who do you think I am? He doesn't even say... Who do you believe I am? He is asking for a declaration. He is asking for a declaration. He is asking for a verbal commitment. Who do you think I am? I'm I'm learning that God really doesn't care what I think. He does care what I believe. But he has asked me to make a verbal statement, a public statement about him, his son, my sin, and eternity. That's what we are about as a church, and that's what we're about individually. So who do men say that I am? You know, he asked Martha a very similar question. And again, back in, back in John chapter 11, verse number 25, listen to these words. So Jesus said to Martha, now let me set this up. Remember I told you where Jesus was, headwaters of the, of the Jordan River, away from the chaos and the arguing with the Pharisees, quiet and serene. Sometimes the question comes, who do men say that I am or who do you think I am, comes in calmness, and sometimes it comes in crisis. Sometimes it comes in calmness, and sometimes it comes in crisis. Now let me set you up. You know the story almost certainly. You know, a guy named Lazarus has died. He's four days dead. He's four days dead. Jesus, who was a good friend, shows up, seems like four days late. Martha's the sister. You know, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And they talk about that and chat about that just for a few moments. And here's what Jesus says to her. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, the one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone, I like that, Everyone who believes in, who lives and believes in me will never die. No, never. See, that's what happens when Jesus arrests death. When he stops death, you never die. Ever. Emphatic. Ever. Do you believe this? Same question. Same question. Who do you say that I am? Speaking to Martha at the graveside in crisis. Do you believe this? These are things you've got to nail down in your Christian walk. I mean, it's got to become second nature to you, like breathing and walking and eating. Do you believe this? Well, back in Matthew 16, 16, Simon Peter replied, You, and the you is emphatic, like, like not one of many, you, you, 
You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's saying, Peter's saying, all my hopes, not only mine, all the hopes of Israel, all the dreams of Israel, all the prophecies made about this person are fulfilled in you. You are the one. He, he moves somewhere beyond you're a good guy, you're a miracle worker, um, you, you open blind eyes, you're a great teacher. Um, some people want people to think about you. Somewhere beyond that, Peter says, you're king. You're leader. You're Lord. You're God. That's who you are. You're the, literally in the Greek it means the anointed one. The one set apart. Peter, Peter, when he says these words, is making a huge declaration. And listen, you've got to make the same declaration in your life. We have got, you've got to get over religion. This thing coming to church, we gather together and we worship, and that's an awesome thing. But we've got to get over religion and focus on the relationship that we have with God the Father through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We have got to nail this down. I'm telling you, more and more in America, in the culture of this world, they're less impressed, less impressed, less impressed with your religion. Religion is not the answer, never has been the answer, but Jesus Christ is. And this, when we reach this point where we say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, that's when you're willing to die for your faith. Kids, students, that's when you reach the point where if your boyfriend doesn't like you, you break up with him. That's when you reach the point... You'll take a stand, guys, that if it means breaking a friendship, you break a friendship. You are the Christ. You are number one. Nothing, nothing comes before you. And Martha, amazingly, back in John 11, answers the same way. This time it's not Peter, it's Martha, a female. And she says this, Yes, Lord, I believe you are the Messiah, the Son of God who comes into the world. So Peter says, in spite of all the popular opinion, and you understand something? For Peter, for Peter, it could have been that. When he says, you're the Christ, the Pharisees want his head too. It could get him kicked out of the synagogue. It could get him disowned by his family, much like the Muslims go through today who trust Jesus Christ as Savior. When he made that statement, in spite of public opinion, he is putting it all on the line. He is all in. And when Martha, in this crisis of circumstances, makes that same statement, she is all in. Her brother is dead, four days dead, decaying by now. And yet Jesus says, he who believes in this will never die, ever. Do you believe this? In spite of crisis, in spite of public opinion, They were all in. And God is calling believers today to be all in. Again, I I think it's on the wall out here where David Platt said, we'll never win this world with, with," and Jackie, I think you wrote about it, we'll never win this world with with half-time giving and half-time commitment. We'll never will. We never will. It's going to take us all in. And by the way, he's worth it. He's worth it. He's just not some historical figure. He's king of kings and he's lord of lords. He's the real deal. The real deal. So Jesus goes on. In Matthew chapter 16, 17. 
He says, And Jesus answered him, Peter, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Let me pause and do something real quick. We have a tendency to elevate above what is right. You say, and what does that mean, Pastor? It means this. We have a tendency to take Peter and elevate him to a status that belongs to Jesus. We've got to be careful we don't elevate above what is proper. You know, the Catholic Church takes this verse and the verse about the rock and elevates Peter to Pope. I'm sorry. That's not what the Scriptures say. That's not what the Scriptures say. Let me, tell you what, let me tell you who Peter was. Peter was a guy who got up in the morning, if he lived in the 21st century, and puts his pants on one leg at a time. Should we respect Peter? Yes. Should we love Peter? Yes. Should we elevate him somewhere where he does not belong? No. And that's true for preachers. It's true for worship leaders. It's true for youth guys. It's true for, for anyone else you want to throw out in the church, Baptist presidents of seminaries, whatever. People are just people. Jesus is Jesus. Be careful. Because you have a tendency. Again, what about Mary? Have you thought about that, Mary? You know what what they said? The angel said, you know, here they said, Jesus said, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. What did the angel say to Mary? Blessed are you among women. And next thing we know, she's a perpetual virgin, which she was not. She had other children. And she's promoted to, to the status above God, above Jesus, and that she's sinless perfection. Don't promote above what God intended. Was she a great girl? Yes. Did God use her? Yes. Should we respect her? Yes. But be careful. We don't promote personalities where they don't belong. Because I'm telling you what, when churches and and when people get their eyes off the one who matters, it's deep weeds, it's trouble every single time. In case you haven't figured out yet, preachers will let you down. Preachers will let you down. Jesus never will. Jesus never will. But Jesus said, Blessed are you, Simon, son of John, or son of Jonah, same translation, Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. You didn't get this on your own. Here's what somebody shared with Peter, finding him, finding me. One day, if you're a Christ follower today, any Christ followers here today? Yeah, okay, okay. If you're a Christ follower, one day you came to the conclusion, well, I'll have to change that in a minute, you came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ was not just a good man. That He was the Son of God. In fact, He was God in the flesh. Do you know how you came to that conclusion? A pastor convinced me. No. A Sunday school teacher did an amazing job. No. God did. You know, Jesus said that no one comes to me unless the Father draw him. The Holy Spirit is in the amazing work of drawing men, women, students, children to Jesus Christ. And He helps us come to the conclusion who Jesus is. And guess what? The Holy Spirit will help you now. As you, have you, after you become a Christ follower, He'll help you stay on track with that in this crazy culture that we live in. And then Jesus goes into this wonderful, wonderful words. 
in, in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Such a wonderful, wonderful truth. But here's the deal. It's also a very confusing truth. Again, the Catholic Church has taken this and elevated Peter to be the foundation of the church. I'm sure Peter was a really nice guy, but he's not the foundation of the church. I love the fact that David sang the song today, Christ alone, cornerstone. The foundation of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the rock on which the church is built. Now, I'll give you the little Greek lesson. Again, I know no Greek, but I'll give you the Greek lesson. Okay? The word Peter here is the word Petros. Petros. It means rock. It means rock. The word Petra, which is the word, the second word, there's a play on words here. First, you know, first Jesus says, you are a rock, Petros. And it is upon this rock, upon this rock, Petra, I will build my church. It, it means one of two things. It means either, and both of them are good, it means either A, bedrock, bedrock, or a quarry of rocks. Either way, if it's bedrock, again, then it's based on Jesus Christ, or it's the quarry which has bedrock of which all of the rock comes from. You know, Peter says, we are living stones, but he is the cornerstone. Jesus did not build his church on a man. He built it on himself. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. If you want real simple words, I think the best way to say it is Jesus built his church on the truth that Peter said when Peter said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's the rock. You understand Muhammad can't say that. Buddha can't say that. Take any other world religion, no other world religion can say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Only Jesus Christ. And upon that truth, I will build my church. The word church there is the word ecclesia. And it's funny because it means gathering. That's all it means. You know, back, back in the days of Jesus, you would go down to the public bulletin board and it would say, please note, there's going to be a meeting of the ecclesia of the city council at 2 o'clock today. You went to little Johnny's elementary school and it would say, there's going to be an ecclesia gathering of the PTA today at 4. The word simply meant gathering. What makes it so unique is where Jesus says, I will build my ecclesia, and it's mine. Not just any ecclesia. Not just any gathering. I mean, the Moose Club today is an ecclesia. The, the, uh, the Elks are an ecclesia, but they're not his ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia, my gathering, my church. And let me say it one more time. If you ever need convincing that the church belongs to Jesus, this is it. And by the way, who builds it? 
Not some popular preacher, not some popular youth guy or music guy, not some denomination, not some fancy building, not some big gym, not lots of buses, not this, not that. What builds the church is Jesus. That's why he's got to be premier. When you go to Spain, we could send you a million dollars. But a million dollars won't win Spain. It takes Jesus. The hope of the mission is Christ. It's Christ. Upon this truth that I am the Christ, I will build my church. I will build my ecclesia. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Would you like to hear the, uh, the sub-note I put on that? The gates of hell will not prevail against it as long as it belongs to him. Someone here today might be tempted to say, well, it seems to me that Satan's doing a lot of winning and we're doing a lot of losing. That's because in a lot of culture in America today, the church has become a country club. The church has become a place where people go and get their needs met. People want to invest in a church. How's your youth program? Because I want Johnny to have a good youth program. How, 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 how's your preschool? Because I want them to have the best of the preschool. Uh, how, how's your teenager program? Because we like to go to Patty's. And there's nothing wrong with going to Patty's. But when you look for a church, don't look for one with a good youth program. Don't look for one with a good preschool department. Don't look for the one where the teenagers get a big bus to ride on. You find you a church that preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is the Christ, and join it. And join it. And then, and then, we don't come to get served, we come to serve. We don't come to coddle. We come to reach out to this city, this town, this world who needs Christ. That's what it's about. That's what it's about. The gates of hell will not, cannot overcome Christ and His church. But we get into trouble when we think it's ours. When we think we can do it. Our checking account. We got money in the bank. We got a big building. Big buildings and money don't win Jesus and can't save a soul. Or don't win people to Jesus and can't save a soul. I tell you what, Jesus is the answer. He is. He is. He says in verse 16, the first part of verse 19, chapter 16, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Keys represent authority. Keys represent privilege. Keys represent Truth. The keys to, to the kingdom is the gospel of Jesus Christ. The authority is that we've been entrusted to share the gospel with this world. The privilege is that we get to share the gospel with this world. And then he says, he says in verse number 19b, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Boy, that sounds important, and it is. You know, Wearsby says that we should maybe take, take a lead from the Williams translation that says it this way. Whatever you forbid on earth must be what is already forbidden in heaven. And whatever you permit on earth must be what is already permitted in heaven. See, again, the church gets in trouble when we add to. 
The church gets in trouble when we take away. Let me tell you something. When he cried out, it is finished, honey, it was done. And when he said it was complete, it was complete. We've got to learn we don't need to add anything to the gospel and we don't need to take anything away from the gospel. The gospel will stand on its own. Let's share it. Let's share it. All that now comes back. It all circles around. It all comes back to this. All of that big bad talking I just did and all that that huffing and puffing only holds power Individually, not with me, individually, when I'm willing to truly ask to answer the question, who do you say that I am? When I'm willing to say Christ is the Christ, no matter circumstances. You're the Christ when my life goes good. You're the Christ here at church because I'm amongst friends and you know, well, I can talk about this stuff and no one's gonna hit me with a rock. You're, you're, the Christ, you're the Christ when it's serene and peaceful. In spite of circumstances, when it's not serene and peaceful, and when it may cost you a boatload, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That needs to start with the senior pastor. And it needs to trickle down to Dave and Brent. And from there, it goes down to the rest of the church leadership. And from there, it goes down to every mom and every dad. And from there, it goes down to every student who lives that out before their younger brothers and sisters. It's a trickle-down effect that if we allow that to happen, culture is changed. It's no secret that Brent, I don't suppose you're welcome at the high school anymore, are you? Not as youth pastor. Yeah. Well, I meant I'm in the high school too. I meant I said the high school. I'm looking at those two girls right there. That's high school and middle school. Are they welcome? Did they get to go to school? Girls, could y'all be missionaries at Harrisburg High School and Vina High School? Yeah, how about you guys? See, the reason the trickle-down effect is so... By the way, can I tell you something? I want to go back to something. She asked that question. How many of y'all invited anybody to church? And I couldn't raise my hand. And I don't have an excuse, but I'll give you one. I'm not sure I talked to anybody who didn't go to this church this week. I may have talked to a a waitress down in Murray, Kentucky, or in Clarksville. But in my day-by-day walk, every person I encountered this week was A, a Christian, or B, goes to this church. You can't win any people like that. You can't win many people like that. You can't invite a whole lot of people to church if your world doesn't involve people who don't go to church. I guess I'm telling on me that i got to broaden my world Hey, Tim, I may have to take up golf. <laughs> We've got to get the message out that we believe He 
is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity and privilege of sharing today. I'm glad it's on me. I'm glad it's on me, Father. Speak to our hearts, Father. May we be willing not only to declare Christ in the safe environment of a church. May we be willing to declare Christ in our everyday walk. May we be willing to seek out those who may be lost. In environments where they may be lost. So we can share who you are with them. Help us today to nail it down. For my friend who might be here today who has never trusted Christ, maybe I'm here to, to get a free lunch. Maybe it just came because someone invited them. May they come to the conclusion by the drawing of the Holy Spirit of just who you are. Not just a good teacher. Not just some guy who did miracles 2,000 years ago. That you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and you live today. And I want to pray that, Holy Spirit, you would draw people to that conclusion and let, lead them to the great Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, today. But God, this room has a lot of Christ followers in it. Help us to draw the line in the sand. Help us to declare, whether it's popular or not, declare in crisis or not, you are the Christ. May we be ready to give that answer, even as Peter himself wrote about. Thank you, God. Now, this is your time. Holy Spirit, this is your time. As people come and perhaps need to pray, as people come wanting to know about joining this fellowship where they could serve others, whether they need to know Jesus Christ as Savior, this is your time. We ask for you to do your sweet work. And Jesus, I pray this in your precious name.